everyone. Welcome to The Sorcerer's Orphan, a podcast created to dissect and explore the inner workings and inspired accidents that have helped the Flaming Lips write, create, and record some of our most iconic music and songs. I'm Stephen Droz, and I will be your host and your guide for this half hour of discussion and rememberings. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. song, Waiting for a Superman, from 1999, a powerful, emotional, classic track. We'll talk about how we wrote the song, we'll talk about the remix of the song, we'll talk about how this song changed the flaming lips. We've got a great, insightful show ahead for you. Let's begin where we always do. This song was written in August of 1997, and it was recorded around that same time later in September, up at our producer Dave Fridman's studio in western New York. It was released on the album The Soft Bulletin in May of 1999, and later released as a single with an edit and a remix in October of 1999. So... I know I said written in 1997, but I think like all songwriters, they always have stuff, three or four things they're playing around with, not finished, not fully realized yet, but I had a good bit of this song already cobbled together from a year earlier in 1996. But it was on acoustic guitar, like this. And it was in a slightly lower key, A major, like this. I already had a lot of the melody and the structure of the song in place. And then we tried it on piano. Which seemed more fitted to the B flat major key. That, as you can hear... is the way it is now. And here is where the songwriter's collaboration is such an unpredictable back-and-forth endeavor. I had played this song for Wayne back in early 1997, but it was like the earlier version I'd played on acoustic guitar, in the lower key. But when I played it for him on a piano and in the higher B-flat key, he had an immediate feeling about it, 
and we wrote the bulk of the song quite quickly right then. And here is the Flaming Lips philosophy about that very dilemma, the dilemma of sounds versus songwriting. To Wayne and I, they are absolutely connected. The feeling you get from, say, hearing a distorted synthesizer playing a series of chords... like it does here in our song Writing to Work in the Year 2025. And then that exact same musical thing done on my piano again. To Wayne and myself, those are both evocative, but perhaps evocative of different things. So yeah, this evoking of something, maybe something deeper, something that only music can express. This would be the reward or the inspiration to move forward on a song. This is our song, The Spider Bite Song. And this is a good example of what you could call phase two of songwriting. Wayne initially wrote this on acoustic guitar, and then we took this inspired little bit and added, well, we added music and sounds and editing and storytelling elements. The song started like this. down in any way, but to me, it was evocative of the song Jack and Diane by John Cougar Mellencamp, who is a great songwriter. And yeah, whereas John Cougar would write a song about trying to get laid in high school, Wayne would write a song about his friend getting bit by a spider. So this was, at one time, a little song on acoustic guitar, and then changed quite a bit into the way it is on the soft bulletin. And so, back to our song, Waiting for a Superman, started to get music and sound effects and arranging done to it. And here is the change that is happening in the way that we, the Flaming Lips, are starting in 1997 to record. Without us collectively making a plan, or even being that aware of it, I was, little by little, starting to play virtually every instrument that we were overdubbing to build up our bigger and bigger arrangements. 
This mix that you are hearing is an unedited instrumental version of Waiting for a Superman. And by this time, I'm playing one instrument, one overdub at a time. I'm playing everything on the track, which could seem awkward. To go from our previous traditional rock group studio dynamic, where, say, the drummer records the drums, the guitar player records the guitar parts, the bass player records the bass, all that had radically changed. And here's what Michael Evans has to say about it. The group dynamic had already changed three or four times since, you know, we started the band as just like, hey, we're just playing this crazy punk rock music, but always felt like, you know, we had these other ideas, but, you know, because we were just from this punk rock background that, you know, it's not like we played violins or horns or anything like that. So, so like you're saying, even 10 years before the Soft Bulletin, we were experimenting with different ways of, uh, of expressing these music, musical ideas. And, you know, I, I bring in classical records and we record them and play them backwards, drench them in reverb or do whatever and put them, put them in songs or at the beginning of songs or bridging songs and stuff like that really is all over our records, uh, even up to the uh, Soft Bulletin. So, so moving into the idea of, um, so by the time we were doing the Soft Bulletin, the idea that I was the bass player or really that anyone had some staked out territory in the band had, had already really started to fade away because everyone at different times would pick up a guitar or a keyboard or, or we'd do samples or whatever. And it, it sort of became more of a process that anyone that had any ideas whether they were on guitars or bass or keyboards or samples, um, nobody had to feel like they were limited, you know, just to what might be perceived as their territory, just being a dude that plays guitar or something. So, so thinking I was just the bass player was an idea that was seemed like it was starting to be limiting to the kind of music we were wanting to make especially by the time we were making the soft bulletin and uh, you know I hadn't and don't consider myself a musician in the literal sense of like a guy who just sits down and becomes technically proficient at 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 their instrument or whatever and uh Wayne and me come from the simplest kind of punk rock musicality and then when Steven joined the band I think it freed all of us up to pursue music that we wanted to make instead of the music we could make and that seemed like that just opened the doors to so many I don't know how to say like bigger possibilities I guess
so, I'm playing every instrument on this track, and that would be bass guitar, electric guitar, acoustic piano, orchestration, different keyboards, and of course the drum kit. This is the actual recording of the drums from the multi-track. There are these little details that I believe make the Soft Bulletin, and this song in particular, so unique. Right at the very end of the Soft Bulletin sessions, in the final push to finish the record, we added, to most of the drum tracks, this little slapback. You can hear it right here. It is subtle, but this little shade and coloring, this little extra bounce, are the result of great imaginative collaborating. Collaborating with our producer Dave Fridman and Wayne and Michael with the playing and the arranging and the mixing every seemingly small detail can make a big difference. A lot of times, it's not clear which way the song's arrangement is going to go. I will just play anything that comes to mind, all through the track, knowing that we can edit it later and decide what we want to do. But to know exactly what to play and when to play is not always what we are wanting. Wayne and Dave, a lot of the time, are hoping for a surprise. Something unexpected to happen. You can hear in this unedited multi-track version that some of the parts I played did not make it into the final mix. So, mixing and arranging a song can ultimately be just as crucial as the writing and performing of a song. We, as the Flaming Lips, along with Dave Fridman, have been very lucky to be able to indulge our every wish on our previous albums. But we also felt like we were making a mistake by being so stubbornly insulated and isolated. We had in the early 90s resisted being remixed by successful commercial producers. But like I said earlier, with the Soft Bulletin, we were in the process of a kind of ego death. And our past arrogance and hang-ups, we felt, were limiting our music. In the fall of 1998, while still creating the Soft Bulletin, we had put the word out to a handful of mix masters and producers to see if they would be interested in remixing a few of our tracks. Peter Mokrin had worked with Michael Jackson, Prince, and most famously, the first R. Kelly records. We were quite surprised and honored that he would put aside a couple of days and have us come to his studio in Chicago and work with him. And here's what Peter had to say about it. I had a classical music degree from a university and then, you know, I had a lot of success in the R&B field, but I always, always had worked with bands and, and, you know, was also caught up in that wave of pop music at the time, you know, like the Britney, Christina, NSYNC, all, all of that. So I, I was, I was kind of involved in all of that. And, and it, it was sort of whoever I was working with at the time, 
I think, you know, I, w- I was viewed as the opposite thing always, you know, so if I was if I was working, you know, on R&B people, they looked at me as a, like a pop guy or a rock guy or, or whatever. And if I was, you know, working, working with a rock band, they would look at me like an R&B guy. So, um, I, I don't, I don't know where, <laughs> I don't think I ever fit in anywhere. Peter was familiar with our song, She Don't Use Jelly, and he was intrigued by our new sound. And though he liked it, we pressed him to change it, and in a sense, make it more pop and more radio-friendly. You know, it's kind of like, um, use like a hairstylist analogy, you know, some people go to a hairstylist and say, make me over, I, I don't know, do something, whereas some people just want a little trim off the top, you know, like don't change my style. So in, the, in my mind, I thought like, well, we can start by doing this makeover concept, but really, I, I think maybe it just needs a little off the top, you know. Working with Peter would be ours and Dave Fridman's first experience with the pitch correction software, most commonly known as Autotune. Yeah, it was a stand. It was. I guess uh, there's. I guess there's never a standard thing, but basically, you know, again, working from the, you know, you're hired to make this a hit, son. Um, you know, kind of tightening up the pitch is a pretty common thing. At the time, it was just really coming in, but nowadays, you know, you won't hear anything on the radio that hasn't been, you know, kind of nipped and tucked pitch-wise. So, I was using it in a in a subtle way in general i have not found one singer ever that said don't you know singers generally want more of it and i'm usually the one saying whoa 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 i don't i don't think we need i don't think we need much of it um yeah th- this works pretty cool because it, it kind of leaves leaves all the personality in there it just just sort of marries it into the blends it kind of blends into the track a little bit better Peter is referring to the auto-tuning of Wayne's singing. Wayne has a very unique voice, and though it is at times quirky and whimsical, it can also be very emotional. There is a certain fragileness that describes and expresses to the listener the scope of the human story, that there is a real living person, a person with flaws and struggles singing this song, which I believe is very effective in Waiting for a Superman. Here is a famous example of what I'm trying to explain. In 1963, at the funeral of assassinated President John F. Kennedy, a bugle player in the United States Army plays taps. It is a tragic moment in American history that is being witnessed by the whole world. Taps, which is ceremoniously played on the bugle, a very difficult instrument to play, even in the best of circumstances. But on this cold, sad day, even more of a musical performance challenge. The bugler's pitch in the longer sustained notes wavers. And one of the notes is actually flubbed.
To many who heard it, it wasn't a bad musician playing a bad note. It was the opposite. To many who heard it, it was a great poignant symbol of a nation in mourning. of Waiting for a Superman. And Wayne will tell us the story behind the lyrics. We'll be right back. Oh my God, it's Flaming Lips' greatest hits. All my dreams coming true. It's got all my favorite songs. Like this one. Oh, and this. Oh my god, and hard to find songs like this one. I'm so happy. Flaming Lips Greatest Hits Available on Warner Brothers Records Get it now Thank you for listening This is The Sorcerer's Orphan A podcast where I, Stephen Drozd Dissect And discuss Some of the Flaming Lips Most iconic music and songs Driven ambulance. It's been re-released on vinyl. I'm so happy. It has this song. And it's got this song. Remember this song? It makes me feel like I'm high. High. The Flaming Lips in a Priest-Driven Ambulance. Available on Rhino Records. Get it now. Remixing is a way, I suppose, of hearing your music anew. But also, hearing another artist reinterpret one of your songs is a very cool way of kind of hearing yourself in another life. Like hearing your story told by another storyteller. It can be quite a treat. Sam Beam, also known as the recording entity Iron and Wine, does a very dark and scraping version of Waiting for a Superman. Here 
is a moment of his recording. what Sam had to say about our song. I don't know. It was just, it just stuck out to me. Um, it was my, I mean, that whole record kind of blew my mind. Um, but at the same time, that one stuck out to me. I think it's just the simplicity of them. It's very plain spoken, but it's also complicated, but also hopeful. Um, and the melody, the lifts, and, you know, it's just beautiful. And so I just responded to the song, and I was talking to a friend of mine, one of my roommates at the time. Um, and we were just talking about how great it was. And then uh, it, his birthday came up, and I had a habit of just recording things for friends for, for as presents. And I recorded that one for him. Um, and then it got out. Uh, you know, people had tapes and ended up putting them on the internet and it got out and about, you know, once I put out this, started releasing records, it was, it was kind of out and about. Um, and I would play it at concerts and stuff because it was also striking to people because, um, you know, the production on the song is so lush and, you know, it's just so orchestrated and large and, um, and mine was so quiet, you know, just as contrast. Yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing. I still don't. You know, it's propulsion to it. <laughs> it's own quiet, lethargic propulsion. Let me paint you the songwriting scenario of this particular song. Wayne and I write songs by any and many methods. It really is whenever and whatever is happening at that time. But for this particular song, we were positioned as a typical songwriting team like Carol King and Jerry Goffin at the Brill Building, or like, say, Burt Bacharach and Hal David, who wrote many hits, and even Mick Jagger and Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones have written many of their songs this way. I'm sitting at the piano, and Wayne is standing there with pen and paper. I'm playing him the chords and singing the melody, and he is deciphering a lyrical poetic story from my expressive, melodic, but wordless singing. And here's what Wayne had to say about it. So, yeah, Stephen and I do occasionally work like uh, just like a normal songwriting team. Um, mostly if he has, if Stephen has a fully formed sounding song already, if he has a, it, it sounds like a song already, I will try upon even hearing it even the first time I hear it I'll try to turn Stephen's mumblings into into words but but some of his his melodic mumbling is he's he's already got words in there and I'm trying 
to keep those words, and yet, you know, I'll I'll be piecing together sometimes a sentence using that word, and then using those sentences, trying to connect it to the bigger story. And we have done this a lot, even up in up to this point, and this is nineteen. 97 I think so we'd we'd done this you know quite a few times previous to this waiting for Superman song but this was was a new sort of emotional connection because my father had had recently died and and when I had met Stephen earlier in our life Stephen's mother and his older brother, they had they had both passed away and up until this point where i'm i'm losing my father and he's lost his mother and brother i think there was probably some emotional connection on a sub subconscious level that we didn't have and we started to write these songs for the soft bulletin and i think both of us would sort of go into this this sort of isolated sleepwalkers world where we're writing a song and though we're conscious and we're we're connecting to each other there's this other level that we're getting this the melodies and the words and the connection that neither one of us I think I don't think we had that connection until this softball bulletin time and especially this particular song and so he's singing a melody and I'm singing words and we would both sort of not a thousand percent know but we would have a pretty good feeling that that word worked and we would let it work and then we might have a feeling that these next couple of words didn't work and we would both sort of know it and we would allow them we wouldn't say it didn't but it would just we'd move on and try to get something that we knew did work and this is what i mean by it's like we're in a world that all is all that's in our mind is writing this song and the whole rest of our life and the whole rest of what we're going to do that morning or the next night or the next day all of it has disappeared into just this very intense, isolated moment with everything about our life, everything that we've ever known, every experience we ever had is going into this next second of this song. And then you come out of it and you don't have every every little bit of the song, but you have, for the most part, you have the song, you have the arc, you have the whole thing and then you have to get back to work and fix up all the little sounds and all the little connections but I feel like this this particular song when we walked away from this songwriting session I feel like we really we really knew we had something and that is the end of our episode I'd like to say a special thanks to Peter Mokran and Sam Beam for helping me and giving you a little more insight into how Waiting for a Superman came to be. And a shout-out and thanks to Wayne and Michael for speaking on my podcast. Thank you for listening. We did some discussions, and I did some rememberings, and I really, really enjoyed creating this show for you. Join us next time. We'll be talking about this song. (laughs) 
consciously screaming from the 1990 album In a Priest-Driven Ambulance, an intense hypnotic studio production that paved the way for the next phase of the new Flaming Lips. It's an inspiring story showing how the Flaming Lips never give up. Until next time, peace and punk rock forever. <laughs>